Thank you, John, for leading us in that prayer. May the Lord hear that prayer. We know we need so badly for the Lord to give healing to our land. And um, we're going to continue to pray that. We don't need to just do it just today. We can continue to seek the Lord as we need to. Well, good morning and happy 4th of July, CFC. Good morning. Uh, Those of you who are online, we're glad that you're tuning in with us. Those of you over at North, we're glad that you're there. And uh, those of us here in South, it's good to see your smiling, okay, maybe not, uh, to see, what's the new term? To see your smize. I think that's a technical term now. It's official, smize. Um, But uh, it's funny too, I was thinking this on Thursday night, I I was like, this is what the world would be like if Bane beat Batman and got his way. If that went over your head, go look up Bane later and it'll make sense, okay? So um, anyway, it's good to be with you. We're gonna continue to uh, worship and seek the Lord. We've been doing that through singing. We did that through prayer there. We're gonna continue to do it through the pages of the scriptures of the Bible. So would you please open those Bibles um, with me? And we're in the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 14. You can turn them on your apps as well. And uh, we've been going through this a great book, the first book of the Bible. I want to remind you that also what we have here is we have a number you can text, and we're going to have our Q&A that we've been doing now for months uh, right after the service today. You can text this number anytime throughout the uh, sermon here, anything about the text of the sermon, anything about the sermon itself, and uh, we're going to do the best that we can to answer those after service, okay? So I'm looking forward to that time. Uh, Let me share with you uh, a a cool experience I had a number of years ago. I'm from small town, Indiana. Don't hold that against me. And uh, this one day I was there in in a McDonald's and we're actually discipling someone. And all of a sudden, uh, an African-American guy walks in the front doors of the McDonald's, um, kind of farther away. I'm in the back and, and I start hearing the employees start ooing and aahing and flipping out over him. And, and then customers are, and they're, they're starting to take pictures and, and selfies, and they're calling relatives and saying, do you know who just walked in the McDonald's? And so obviously it's someone who's famous, but uh, I couldn't really make out who he was. And then he turned, he started walking down. You know how McDonald's has really narrow aisles back to the restroom, restrooms, and that's kind of where I'm at. So he's walking towards me, and, and I am just racking my brain thinking, okay, who is this guy? This guy is famous. I can't figure it out. And he could tells, he looked me in the eyes that I didn't know who he was, that I was trying to figure it out. And so he didn't say anything, but he gets his arms up like this and he does a couple jabs like that. And immediately I was like, this is Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is literally walking down a McDonald's aisle in small town, Indiana to me. And we smile and say, hi. He doesn't say anything because he had Parkinson's and he wasn't able to talk. But he did this, and he did a lot of talking with that, and I knew who he was, and so, you know, it was really cool, fun experience to be able to say I met him in that way, um, but, but here's what I want to focus on, is what were the, the uh, employees doing? What were the customers doing as they were ooing and aahing over him? Well, in a way, we could say that they were giving glory to Muhammad Ali. Now, I know you might say, well, that's kind of a strong word, really, you know, and it is actually, it does fit in to to the definitions of giving glory to something or someone. So let me give you here um, a a definition here. Um, It is to give honor, uh, attention, magnificence, credit, fame, renown, recognition, kudos, goatness, legitness, dopeness, and sickness, whatever word you want to throw out there to say that something or someone is, is awesome, right? It's to, it's to say that. Now, for God, God is actually glorious by his very nature, isn't he? I mean, he, he, he gives the definition of glory and gloriness. And then whenever God does anything, he just adds to his glory, right? Um, and that's how it works for God. Now, if we take this idea of giving glory, we, we put it as a verb and giving glory to God, there's at least two main categories of how you and I, how anybody can give more glory to God. Not that he's lacking, but we can give him more. So here is that. We can both tell God how glorious he already is. That's a way to glorify him. We can also obey his commands. And as we obey his commands, we give him glory through the obedience. 
So there's a passage, for instance, like this one, talking about the telling God how glorious he is. This is First Chronicles 16. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord, what? Glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And so that's what it is to give glory to God, to tell him, to obey him. Of course, the reverse of that would be not telling God how glorious he is when we should be. And then, of course, disobeying his commands would be, if you will, robbing God of glory that he deserves to have. Now, here's another fact about uh, glory and with us as human beings in our nature. We're made in the image of God. We are always giving glory to someone or something at all times in our lives. It's our nature. There's no neutrality here. The question is who are we giving glory to? Are we giving it to God who deserves glory or are we giving it to people or things or even ourselves? And so here's a question I want to start off with. The whole big idea today is this. Are we glorifying God in our lives? Or are we glorifying others or ourselves in our lives? That's the big idea. And so as we continue to study the life of Abram in Genesis, uh, we're learning about this friend of God, and he is trying over and over to bring glory to God. And of course, we've recently read how he failed in doing that, for instance, lying about his wife to the Pharaoh and, and those events. But once in a while, Abram gets it right. And in chapter 14, he, he succeeds in at least four ways that Abram gives God glory that you and I also can apply these four things into our lives and better learn how to give glory to God. And now, yeah, I want, want to give you a heads up, okay? You know how context is really important to understand things. And especially also when you're like, okay, I want to come and hear a sermon that really applies to my life. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you got to know the context for the application to occur, right? Uh, but I'm going to give you a heads up. On this chapter, there's a lot of context. So I hope that uh, we didn't all stay up too late last night doing fireworks. I hope we've got some caffeine in us or whatever it is, or we're prayed up and asking the Spirit to help us pay attention because there's going to be a lot of context. But I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, everybody there at home, don't get too comfortable on the couch, okay? There's a lot that God is going to speak to us, but we got to get through the context. Does that make sense? Are you guys ready? All right, here we go. Uh, we're going to look at verse 1 in chapter 14. It says, And it came about in the days of Amphramel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goyim. All right, so we got these four kings representing four nations. Where are they at? I've got a map for us to help us out. Thank you, Google Maps. This is actually modern day nations. We got Iraq here, Israel, Egypt, Turkey, as you can see. And these four kings are 4,000 some years ago, but they're living here in the Iraqi area in the, this fertile valley between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And um, in that day, the nations in that area would have been, been called Mesopotamia. All right, so that's these four kings. There we are. Let's look back at verse 2. It says that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came out as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. So let's go back to our map. These five city uh, kings and nations all live over here. This is modern day Israel. Specifically, it's very hard to see. There's a body of water right here called the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. They live in a valley just south of of that. That's where they are. So what happens? Well, the nations come all the way across and look what happens. 12 years. So I love that Moses, who's writing this, he just jumps to the conclusion of that war. They lost uh, over there in Israel. And so 12 years, those five kings served Chedorlaomer, the Mesopotamian king. Uh, but the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim and the Zuzim in Ham and the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathim and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Ad and Mishpat. 
that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. Now, did I by chance mention to you that when we all die and we stand before the pearly gates of heaven, there's going to be a litmus test on this. And we're going to need to know every name and every king. And if we get it wrong, we're doomed. No, okay. I'm so thankful. That's not how salvation works. And uh, I don't think that when God has Moses write stuff like this, he's like, I want all my children to memorize these things, okay? Um, but but we're, we're, we're getting the context to get the application for our lives, okay? So, so continue to hang with me. Uh, I'm trying to use some maps here, hopefully, to help as well. Okay, we're going to zoom in. What has happened is, again, um, these kings had come from Mesopotamia. This is zoomed into Israel. They've come and they had conquered this area. Well, a lot of these nations and, and so forth, they had rebelled back. These city-states have rebelled back. So the kings come back from Mesopotamia and now they are traveling this way on the map. These are actually all mountains here. This is modern-day Syria down to Jordan. And they are conquering and reconquering and getting back. They go south beyond this map, come back up to Kadesh. That's right here. That's in the scripture right there in the verse. Then they circle back around. And right here we see the five city-states of Gemara, Samad, Sodom and so forth. And now they are back to the Valley of Siddim. And that is where we're going to continue to read. I'm going to leave the map up to help us to see what's happening. And just follow along in your own Bible. Verse eight, it says that the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and Zeboim and king of Bela, that is Zoar, they come out and they raid for battle. They're going to now try to fight back this invading army once again. In verse nine, against Cheddar Larimer, and it sums up those guys. And by the end of verse nine, it says, four kings against five. By the way, historians call this the war of nine kings. Does that not sound cool? That sounds like Lord of the Rings, you know, but it was like, this is real Middle Eastern stuff that happened. And so here's the war of nine kings. Uh, verse 10, now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits. This area is full of tar pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they fled and they fell into them. By the way, you can go to Israel today and they have remnants of the tar in pits in those days. It's, it's just cool. And, but it says, but for those who survived, they fled to the hell country. So they went west up here to Israel. Uh, they're running for their lives. Verse 11, then the invaders took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. Now you're like, okay, I thought this was about Abram. Well, now we're finally getting close to Abram, okay? Remember his relative here, look at verse 12. Uh, what happens? They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed. Why? For he was living in Sodom. Now, if you remember last week, we learned that he went and lived near Sodom, but by this time in history, he's actually living in Sodom. And of course, if you're living in a city that gets conquered by someone else, you're going to get taken as well. And so he gets taken, he and his family bound up as now they're going to be slaves of these four Mesopotamian kings. Uh, verse 13, then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eskel and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. So let's go back to our map again. The war happened here. Lot gets taken. That nation starts going up north of the Jordan River Valley here. But a fugitive runs away to hear Mamre, which is modern day Hebron. And he tells Abram, hey, your nephew Lot and his family, your relatives have been taken as slaves by this nation and they're running north. So what does Abram do? Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So here's what happens. The Mesopotamian kings conquer slaves. They're taking them up the Jordan River. They're gonna go back north and go back to Mesopotamia with them. Well, Abram hears about it. He gets his 318 men, arms them up. He starts running and he is chasing them down and finally meet them all the way up here in the area of Dan is when he catches up with them. What happens next? Verse 15, uh, Abram divides his forces against them by night. Brilliant move. And uh, 
he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Where's that? That's off the map. This is Syria. Damascus is up here. So he fights them here, beats them by night, chases them all the way down up north. And verse 16, he brings back all the goods and he brought back his relative lot with his possessions and all the women and the people. So I don't know about you, but I say that we need to tell historians that the name needs to be broadened. It's not just the war of nine kings, but it's the war of nine kings and the one nomadic shepherd who brought them all to school. That's what this really is. I mean, this is phenomenal. I mean, these are nations with, you know, four kings with the thousands of troops that have traveled hundreds of miles. They just got done reconquering all this area. And Abram's like, uh-uh, here we go. And he chases them down and, and beats them. It's, it's pretty awesome. All right, we're almost to application. Hang with me. Let's check out the aftermath of the battle. It says in verse 17, that after his return, Abram's return, from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Now, what we're going to see here is two kings are going to come out to meet Abram the victor. Two very different kings. Now, the first one is the king of Sodom, and then we get verse 18, another king, Melchizedek. Maybe you've heard of him. He's king of Salem, and he brings out bread and wine. Sorry, Baptist, wine can be good. And uh, he was the priest of God most high, is what that is. And it says that Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him Melchizedek a tenth of all. Now, we could do a whole sermon series on Melchizedek, all right, and who this guy is. Phenomenal character. But here's just what we need to know. Two things for today to, to be able to apply this passage to our life. We need to know that Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which later became the city of Jerusalem. You hear it in there? Okay, that's where he is. He's a king, but he's also a priest of the one true God, Yahweh. And so here's what happens. The priest of God comes out to Abram, who just got back victorious, and he blesses Abram. Why does Melchizedek bless Abram? Because Abram has glorified God in this war. And one of the ways that Abram has brought glory to God in this war, that now he's being blessed by the priest of God, is that Abram trusted God no matter the odds. And the same thing for you and I, brothers and sisters. Here's our application, one of the four today. We can bless and glorify God by trusting God, no matter the odds that are up against us. I want us to remember this again. Here's Abram. He's a nomadic shepherd, which means he doesn't even live in a city. He's got these, he's, his relatives and so forth, but like, and so these Four Mesopotamian kings with thousands of units and they've conquered the land once, they're coming, conquering it again. And he runs out against those odds with 318 guys. Now what would drive someone like Abram to go up against such crazy odds stacked against him? There's at least two reasons why. One, is that Abram knew the heart of God. He knew that God wants us to stand up for our loved ones, to love our neighbor as ourselves. He knew that it's the right thing that if my relative gets conquered and is in slavery, that I need to go try to do something about it. He got that, right? That's the right thing to do. But also he had a unique thing as well as Abram. Remember, he was promised by God that his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. You see, he knew that and that he would have many descendants. Now, at this point, how many descendants does Abram have? Zero. So in a way, it's like Abram's like, I know the right thing to do is to go and try to save my relative. And also, wait a second, I don't have any descendants, but you know what? I trust God. I trust that he's gonna fulfill his promise for descendants. I don't even have any. So in a way, I'm, I think I'm invincible. Let's go do this. Right? And so sure enough, he does. And he goes against the odds because he trusted the Lord to do what was right. And he trusted the Lord. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, let me ask us this morning, do we trust the Lord 
to do the right thing, to do what God has called us to do, even if the odds are stacked against us, even if it looks like we might fail. Is there anything in our life right now that God is specifically calling us to do? We know it, but maybe we're hesitant because we might fail, because it doesn't look like we'll, we'll actually succeed. So I just say with love, like, let, may we rise up like Abram here and say, you know what? If this is the right thing to do, if this is what God's specifically calling me to do, I'm gonna step out in faith and I'm gonna trust the Lord to help me no matter what it is. You know, there's a lot of times in my life I have failed at this. I've let fear of, of failure stop me from doing what maybe God called me to do or, or doing the right thing. But once in a while I, I get it right. And I'll tell you what, it is a ride of life to step out in faith, even when the odds are stacked against, and then see the Lord do his thing. There was one time that my wife and I, we were seeking the Lord for our life, and God, what do you want us to do? And, and we felt called by the Lord, specific calling to move from Indiana, where we were from, and to move all the way to Des Moines, Iowa, which I had never been to before. I didn't know anything about Des Moines, Iowa, other than I think I remember seeing it flooding on the news at one point or something. And, um, but we believed that God was calling us not just to plant any church, but to plant a church that was going to make an impact for the kingdom of God in the spiritual and heavenly realms. Like it was gonna shake the metro and shake central Iowa. Like we believe this by faith. Well, at the same time, there were 13 other adults in Des Moines who were praying and feeling the same calling from the Lord to plant a life-giving, gospel-centered, spirit-filled church that would make it so that Des Moines is never the same again. And so a whopping 15 of us, we move out there, we joined with the 13, there was 15 of us Stepping out in faith to believe such a big thing of God. And you know how much money we had in the bank? $15,000. 15 people with $15,000. We believe that God was going to plant a church, not just any church, but a church that was going to change the metro. A lot of odds stacked against us, especially when you know church planting, the stats are like most don't make it compared to those that do. And then maybe a lot of times those that do barely like survive for a long time. Does that make sense? And so we're just like, you know what? This is what God's called us to do. We're going to trust the Lord. And it is really cool to be able to say, and all glory goes to God, that in less than, less than five years, not only did we survive by the grace of God, but we were thriving by the grace of God. We were having over 300 average attendance and multiple services. We were having people come to know Christ left and right. The, the city, the metro was truly being impacted. More and more people had heard about this church that, that stepped out in faith, this brand new church planted. And, and if you ever want to meet me over a coffee or meal with mask on, of course, I'll tell you more about all the things that God was doing through our church. And so let me just say this by experience and many times in my life, like guys, no matter what's stacked up against us, let's step out in faith. Let's obey and trust the Lord and see what God's going to do. Let's move on. Let's go to the second point of application. Here's something. You notice what Abram does to Melchizedek at the end of the blessing? Did you catch that? Check this out in verse 20. It says that Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. Now, the word there in the text is tenth or tithe. Maybe you've heard of that before. Now, Abram is giving Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils that he had obtained from this war. Now, um, in a way, though, he's not really giving them to Melchizedek because Melchizedek is not just a king, he is the priest of God, and he had just blessed him. And so what's actually happening here is that Abram is giving back to God through his priest an offering, a tithe. Why? To say, thank you, God. You know, and it's a way that you and I can do the same thing. We can give glory to God by giving back to him generously in our lives when he blesses us. You know, Abram knew that it wasn't his measly militia of 318 men, nor his might, nor his brains and smarts in war, although again, a night attack was pretty brilliant, that caused and brought the victory over these nations. But it was who? It was the Lord. Abram knew that. He got that, didn't he? And so as he gets all this loot and all this stuff from the Lord, ultimately through this victory, He's like, I want to glorify God by giving back to God through his priest a portion of what God has given to me. 
Now, this again, as I said, the word tithe. Maybe you've heard of tithe. Maybe some of you tithe. Maybe you've been at churches that do the tithe and so forth, giving a 10% is what that means. This is actually the foundational passage of where it all came from originally. And as you study the Old Testament, the Jewish people, from this day on, they continued to start giving a tithe minimum back to the Lord of the fruits and the income and the things that God has given to them as a way to glorify God and say, thank you, God, for blessing me. Now you see that happen all the way up to when Jesus comes onto the scene. And then when he dies and raises from the dead, um, many Christians like our church here at CFC, we believe that Jesus fulfilled this as a law for God's people of giving a 10%. But what we do see in the New Testament is that when the Lord blesses us with whatever resources that we give back generously in return. Okay, and so you can, I'm gonna summarize for you the teachings of the New Testament. If you do wanna read some, you can read 2 Corinthians chapters eight and nine on your own, 2 Corinthians chapters eight and nine. But let me summarize the teachings in the New Testament. It's something like this. If you are thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for you as a sinner, why don't you consider how you can generously give something back to him to say thank you? That's the New Testament concept of giving. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that sound so different than here's a limited percentage, here's what you give back to the Lord versus uh, I am so thankful that Jesus would die for such a sinner as me. What, what can I possibly give him of my resources today to somehow say thank you God for what you've done in my life? You hear that's it's so much different, isn't it? So are we doing that in our lives today? When the Lord blesses us in some capacity, are we giving back to him something generously of what he's given to us? Because actually, all of it is his anyway, isn't it? And so it's us just saying, Lord, what, what do you want me to give back in this scenario? Financially, uh, when, I, when I get income, am I, am I considering my family members, my church members, my neighbors that are in physical need? Am I considering giving to them financially in the name of the Lord as a way to give back to the Lord in these needs? Uh, when I get income, am I considering giving to the life of my church so that the ministry of the work of the gospel through my church continues? Am I considering giving to missionaries who are going to take this good news of Jesus to people who don't have the opportunities far away? But it's so much more even than just money, isn't it? Another resource is time. I've got some extra time on my hands, Lord. What, what would you want me to do with my time? Maybe my neighbor's you know, moving or got a project. Can I help them or someone in my church or my family group? Or maybe serving in the life of our church so the work of ministry can continue on. Now, right now, I know some of you are like, wait a second, I thought our church is kind of like locked down. We don't have a lot going on. A lot of our serving teams are kind of on hold. And praise God for all of you on hold. We're thankful for that. But actually, did you know there's actually one ministry in our church that right now is actually having to hold back from what they sense God wants them to do because we don't have enough people willing to serve in it? And I'm not gonna give this as some guilt trip or anything like that or whatever, blah, 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 okay? I'm just saying, if you're sitting there right now saying, you know what, I think the Lord wants me to take some more of my time and give it back to him and serve him in some capacity, would you consider serving in the children's ministry? The children's ministry is actually having to hold back from offering some of the ministry that they'd like to do because they don't have enough volunteers. So just take that between you and the Lord. But let's make sure that we give back to the Lord what he's given to us. One amazing story that really inspires me in this. Maybe you guys have heard of Pastor Rick Warren. You ever heard of him before? He wrote a book called The What? Purpose Driven Life, yeah? It's been a number of years ago now. And so God really blessed that. And, um, and, and he didn't write it for this at all, but it's how the Lord blessed it. He actually made millions and millions of dollars off of that book. It was a New York Times bestseller. And so what does uh, Pastor Rick do with these millions of dollars? Well, of course, he buys a private island in the Caribbean and he makes it into a spiritual retreat, you know? No, okay, maybe not. All right, <laughs> Here, here's what he did. Not binding on all Christians. It's just he sought the Lord. He's like, God, you've blessed me with all this. How can I give it back to say thank you generously? And so God laid in on his heart, a couple things. One, to do a reverse tithe. He ever since now has been taking all those investments and everything he did with all that and he gives 90% of his wealth away and he only lives on 10% of it. Second, he also, from that day forward, he has never taken a dollar from his church and salary because he wants to give back to the work of God. 
And so may we keep that in mind as God blesses us. All right, well, let's continue on as we look at how we can glorify God a couple other ways. Now, you guys remember I said there's two people that come up to Abram at the end of the war. There was the King Melchizedek. He's a righteous guy. He's a priest of God. And then, of course, you get the king of Sodom. Very, very different guy. Uh, Let's check this out. Verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, he says, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Now, remember, Abram just went and recaptured all the stuff that belonged to to Sodom, you know, the, you know, his family, his friends, he got away somehow, but like all the possessions, all this stuff. Now, rightfully speaking, Abram actually owns it. I mean, he's the victor. He has a right to, to keep it all. And of course, but the king of Sodom comes back. He's like, hey, basically, I just want my family and friends back, but I'll let you keep all the possessions as like a nice gesture in a request. But see, Abram knew the Sodomites. Abram knew the king of Sodom. He knew that they were wicked, that they were not about the glory of God. And he was discerning. And check out what he does in verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, king of Sodom. Why? For fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, his allies, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. You see, Abram knew this about the Sodomites, about the king of Sodom, what the king of Sodom was up to is that if he would have taken, some, or taken the loot uh, that he had taken from the king of Sodom, that later on, at some point, the king of Sodom would have said, oh yeah, look at Abram, he's so wealthy, he's so big, and you know what, it came from that war, but you know what, that we gave them, we let him have all that stuff. And so instead of God getting the glory for the wealth of Abram, the king of Sodom was gonna try to steal the glory away from God for all that wealth. You see what he's doing there? And so Abram's like, "Uh uh-uh, you can have it all back because I know what you're up to. Why? Because Abram, as a friend of God, was ferociously gonna fight to guard the glory that God deserves and not let anybody else steal it from him, right? And so this is another way that he brought glory. You and I can do the same thing as a friend of God. We're gonna guard the glory of God when people try to take it away. Now, if you will, sometimes I call it like a glory thief. You might say, well, who's the glory thieves? Well, anybody who has sin, which means all of us, right? The very essence of what sin is, is to try to steal glory from God and bring it and put it on other people and other things. That's just the nature of our sinful nature. And so we got to make sure that we guard it from ourselves. We guard it from other people trying to take glory away from the Lord, And you might be surprised how much this actually shows up in our personal lives, how much it actually shows up in our local churches, among us as even God's people. I believe with all my heart, unfortunately, as much as I love the American church, I I would say in my opinion and studying and experience it and, and being in leadership and so forth in the American church as a whole, and I'll say the evangelical Protestant churches, um, I think we got some room to grow and making sure that God gets the glory he deserves instead of people in his churches. And so here's what I want us to all do. I want you all to think about whether you're online right now, whether you're in the north or you're here in the south with me, um, is that you think about the church that you're a part of. Of course, most of us are a part of this church, but if you're online uh, and you have a different church or you're here visiting, you have a different church, think about your church. But this is like a healthy and a holy analytical question to think of our church. Here's the hard question I'll ask. Whose name is mentioned or said the most? in the life of your church? Whose name is mentioned or said the most in the life of your church? Now, I'm not talking about in the sermons or in the songs sung. I'm talking about everywhere else in between, in the hallways, in our family groups, in our Bible studies, in our children's meetings, in the youth group meetings, in the fun times we're just hanging out with people in our church, in the leadership meetings, in what's printed, in what's on websites, 
Uh, you, you catch what I'm saying? In the life of a church, whether it's this one or any other church we're a part of, whose name is mentioned and brought up the most? You see, I know some people might say, well, wait a second, I th- can't we just assume it's a church? So wouldn't it be Jesus? Yeah, I mean, do we have to like directly and, and intentionally always just talk about Jesus or can we just assume that it's about Jesus because, you know, it's a church? Can I just tell you something I've learned in life that what gets assumed is eventually doomed. What gets assumed is eventually doomed or forgotten. That when I stop choosing to say uh, things that are, are supposed, that are, you know, might think, oh, it's assumed and it's really there and I don't. And over time, it's amazing how we kind of tend to forget some things, right? And sometimes I think that's what's happened in some of the American churches is that we assume it's about Jesus. Therefore, we're not going to really talk about Jesus. And next thing you know, when we analyze and we think about, there's people in the church that are talked about all the time. There are people with a lot of good gifts, communication gifts, singing song gifts, other kinds of gifts that God has given to them. But what happens is, I, and I have found this, I have been within some churches where I'm like, I walk away and I'm thinking, if I didn't know that was a church and it's about Jesus, I didn't hear much about Jesus. I heard a lot about a person and their gifts. There was a time when I lived there in Iowa. There was a, the biggest church in the metro and, and therefore the state, it was the Biggest church is huge. And, and the, the main leader speaker, very communi- gifted in communication, no doubt, doubt about it. But time and time again, you would talk to someone and, and, and about their church and they would say, oh, we love the pastor and he speaks so good. In fact, when we hear he's not speaking, we don't go to church. Like over and over and over. And I sit there and I think, Jesus, there's something wrong with this. Because the last time I checked, Jesus is always there, right? Like, why are we going to work? Who are we going to worship and to give attention to and focus to? Is it people in the church or is it Jesus Christ? Do you hear what I'm saying? You know, and there's some things as church leadership that we can try to even do to try to stop this from happening because it's a, it's a tendency of, of us as people to attach to people instead of Jesus. And so there was one thing that the church that we were at, especially when we saw what was going on in the metro with this, this one church and other churches, we were like, you know what? Here's what we're gonna try to do to counteract this. Um, we chose that we would never mention who was gonna speak ahead of time for a service because again, Jesus is always gonna be there anyway and he's the focus. Well, then on the backside too, we chose that when there was a different speaker last week and now there's a different speaker this week that we would try not, I mean, we weren't legalistic about it. We try not to just like, oh yeah, that person, you know, they, they were speaking and mentioned them by name and do a lot of focus on the person. Well, we wanted to focus on the content that was preached on because, and, and on Jesus because it's always about Jesus, right? And so, and so we tried to do that. Well, I'll never forget we had a new staff member and he knew all about it, but he got up one week. I was the main teacher, speaker, whatever, but he gets up and he just like starts going on and on about me. And it was honestly sickening. And I know he was doing it with good intentions, but it was like completely not focused on Jesus. Well, I'm like, okay, he's new. I'm going to let it go. And I might deal with it if it happens again. And well, the next week rolls around, I'm now back up speaking and and, I, and I, I just go like, hey, last week we, we talked about this and, and this is what Jesus was telling us and now we're moving on in the passage and I didn't mention him by name. Well, sure enough, that within a couple of days, he contacts me. He's like, I wanna meet with you. I sit down, he is mad. He's like, I don't understand. I, I just gave you so much respect in the sermon before and I mentioned you and all this kind of stuff and then you get up there, you don't even mention my name once. Dead serious. My heart just broken. I said in love, I'm like, do you, can you hear yourself? <laughs> it's about Jesus. It's not about you and it's not about me. You see, this actually happened in the early church in Corinth. Maybe you've heard of that where they're like, oh, it's a Paul. Oh, it's Apollos. And Paul says, I'm summarizing. And he's like, guys, it's not about me. It's not about Apollos. It's about Jesus Christ. 
And so brothers and sisters in Christ, here's what I want us to do. I want us to put up a healthy, holy radar, not a, not a, a critical heart and attitude, okay? But a holy uh, radar up that when we're in the life of whatever church we're a part of and we're in our family group and we're in our gatherings and so forth and just kind of think over time, who gets the most attention, the most mention, the most fame, the most credit? Is it Jesus? And if we kind of like over some time and kind of feel convicted, like, oh my gosh, you know what? I think we actually, whether we knew it or not, whatever, we're kind of lifting up a person instead of Jesus more. Don't go off and try to get on someone. Let's start with ourselves and say, you know what? I'm just gonna start making sure Jesus is mentioned more often because he should be. And I think if we just continue to always have that radar up, and isn't that not what we would all want? We want our church to be when a visitor comes in and leaves out that they're like, you know what? They are all about that guy named Jesus Christ. And let's guard the glory of God as God's friends. All right, we got one more point of application today. Let me get there. We've got this. We gotta make sure that we asked, ask Jesus to be our rescuer. Ask Jesus to be our rescuer. I want us to think about this Again, with Lot, we've got his family. We've got all these people that are conquered by the Mesopotamian kings. So in a way, they would have uh, what? They would have been bound by some sort of chains or rope or something. Why? Because the captives, of course, would want to run away. Who wants to be a slave and conquered by someone else and dragged away? And so they would have had something over them, uh, you know, to keep them bound and so forth. Now, of course, we know the story and what happened is what? Uh, The hero Abram shows up with his 318 men and does a stellar battle, defeats, runs down the enemy coalition, beats them, frees the captives, takes the chains off of them and sets them free. Now, the same Abram though, he knew about something much bigger than this battle that he just went through. He knew about a war that was much more important. He knew about an ultimate enemy coalition that existed. That this enemy coalition has already defeated and conquered every human soul, his own, and all the descendants that were gonna come. And they'd already conquered all of our souls. And they'd already put spiritual chains on all of our souls. And they put a lock on it that has one key and they have the key and we don't and he didn't. And that enemy coalition is made up of sin and Satan and hell. And he knew that if we die with these spiritual chains of sin and that lock on it without the key to take them off, that we would die and go to the pit of hell separated from God forever because of that. But see, Abram also knew this, That when God promised to him that all the nations would be blessed through his descendants, Abram knew that that of all the descendants, there was going to be a special descendant who would eventually come and show up on the scene someday. There would be this unique guy who would look at that enemy coalition of sin and Satan and hell in the eye and defeat them once and for all somehow to get that key from them to unlock the, un- the lock and to offer freedom for him, his soul, and for the souls of all people that would come to him. And of course, what happened 2,000 years after Abram? One of his descendants named Jesus Christ shows up in the promised land in Israel. And when Jesus hung on that cross, he defeated the powers of hell and Satan and sin. And when he descended into hell, he grabbed the key from Satan himself. And when he rose from the dead three days later, he rose as the victorious rescuer of souls. Can I get an amen in church today, even with mask? Hey, 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 right? Yeah. He's the, the rescuer. And so uh, Abram, see, in the New Testament, when it looks back to Abram, uh, it says that his faith was counted to him as righteousness multiple times. And what was his faith? In what? 
in a coming rescuer of his soul through his line, of a coming Messiah, of a coming Christ, and his name eventually became, it was Jesus. That is what saved him. But for you and I, we are after the death and the cross and the resurrection. But the same thing for us, this is actually where giving glory to God all starts. It starts with this. Are we willing to ask Jesus to be our rescuer? I'll tell you what, when we do, and he comes, spiritually speaking, and he takes the keys that he rightfully grabbed, and he sets us free from the chains of our sin, it will change your life. I want you to check out, this is awesome, there's a guy named Emil, he lives over in California. He was born just like all of us. The Bible says we're all born in these spiritual chains of sin, aren't we? And he was born just like us. And then he starts thinking that these different things are going to satisfy him in life. You know, uh, going to get into sexual sin and outside of marriage. He joins a gang. He gets into violence, thinking that's where he's going to get family from. He gets into drunkenness. And then, of course, in life, like a lot of us, we realize that these chains actually aren't satisfying us. Uh, and so then he becomes suicidal. And yet this one day, he has a friend who's a Christian who says, hey, why don't you come with me to a Christian concert? And I want you to hear what God does in his life at this concert. Check this out. And then the preacher got up and he started to proclaim the gospel. My heart just started to pound. I remember hearing things, things that I had pondered in my own life, things that as I was laying in bed at night and praying and saying, God, I know I need to give you my whole life, but I just can't, I can't stop this gangster lifestyle. I can't stop my immorality. I can't stop my drinking. I can't stop all these things. And he was touching on one thing after the other. But when he started to talk about how salvation was a free gift of God, my mind was blown. I never understood that. I always thought my good had to outweigh my bad. That in the end, if, if somehow I was able to do enough good works, then maybe if they outweighed my bad works, then God would allow me to get into heaven. I came to learn that salvation is something that God does uh, and through that imputes to sinners his righteousness, something that we could never ever earn on our own. That a Christian is someone who has repented of their sins, who has placed their faith in Christ, who has Christ as Lord in their lives. And then I remember just standing there with tears streaming down my face and crying out to God in repentance, sensing his presence there unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my life. And it was instant. I remember sensing like a, a thousand pound weight had been lifted from my shoulders. And I was immediately transformed. I remember we, we walked out, we got in my friend's car. He turned on the same wicked radio station we used to listen to. And I look over at him and I say, hey, what are you doing? We're Christians now, we don't listen to that stuff anymore. He looked at me like, whoa, you know, you're crazy. What's going on with you? I knew then and there that nothing would ever be the same. But little did I know how far God was gonna go in changing me. Little did I know that I would become a pastor. Little did I know that I would serve in an international ministry that is reaching millions of people around the world. And as I look back again on that moment of time, as I've been back to that same location, I've stood there and I've just thought, wow, the divine, gracious, merciful hand of God to do what only he can do for his purposes and for his glory. Did you guys all hear that part? When he cried out to Jesus to be his rescuer, how he said it felt like a what? A weight was lifted off of him. That weight, it literally is something you can feel in a sense sometimes. You know, not all the time, but sometimes you do. And a lot of people explain that where it's just like this weight on your soul. It's those spiritual chains. And that's what Jesus Christ can do for us if we're willing to cry out to him. And so have we done that today? For those watching online, have you done that today? Those in North, have you done that today? Have you asked Jesus to rescue us? Because all of us need rescued. All of us are born with those sinful chains. We've been conquered, we're captives, we need set free. And if you wanna do that, here is how we do that. 
What it means to ask Jesus to rescue us, he just talked about it too. It's this idea of saying, Jesus, would you please set me free by what you did on the cross for my sins? But here's a catch to it. Are you, are you ready? The Bible also teaches this, that we will always be a servant or slave of someone. There's only two options. Are you ready? It's either the enemy coalition of sin and hell and Satan or Jesus. In other words, Jesus is like, listen, I'll set you free, but I don't set people free to just be free. You can't just have autonomy. It's either you're gonna be slave to your sin or you'll be a slave to me. A lot of you right now, all through this sermon, you've been sitting there going, what is on your shirt? I'm trying to figure this out. Now I can tell you, are you ready? It's in Greek, doulos, slave or servant of Jesu Christu, Jesus Christ. You see, if you want Jesus to be your rescuer, you also have to be willing to make him your master. But I'll tell you what, you will never regret it. Make sure you do. Now, before we end, can I talk to the rest of us, brothers and sisters in Christ? Praise God, at some point in our life, we cried out to Jesus to be our savior, our rescuer, and our master. We've been enjoying the freedom in Christ, but by experience and by reading the Bible, here's something we learn, that we can continue even though the lock has been removed. And when we die, we are going through those gates of heaven because of what Jesus has done. But in this life until then, we we can choose to try to go back to some of the chains, can't we? To go back to some of the sin that used to hold us down and start trying to put them back on. Or maybe it's like, oh, you know what? Here's a new one. I'm gonna go put some new ones on and, and start getting stuck in those. And, and the Bible says entangled in those. And again, we're not putting the lock on because guess where the lock is? It's gone. Jesus removed it. I'm not worried about my salvation being lost, but what I can do to myself and what we can do ourselves as free children of God is not so much live in so much freedom, because we, we want to start getting into sin again and putting these chains back on. And what we're doing in that sense, we're robbing God of glory in our lives. And we're not living in the freedom and the joy that Jesus came to give us. And so this is part of my story. Jesus took the lock and the chains off at a young age and I lived in freedom with Christ growing up through youth and, and so forth. But by the time I got to college, I began to see some chains of life laying around in sin. I thought, yeah, that might be fun. And I began a process over a couple years of getting addicted to sexual sins. My heart got hard-hearted towards people. Pride grew in me, deception and so forth. I really far, uh, fell far away from God. Never lost my salvation, but man, I was a mess. But one day Jesus is like, enough is enough, son. And he gave me the power to say, Jesus, take these chains off once again. And he set me free from those things. Brothers and sisters in Christ, so there's some sort of chains over your life right now. Some kind of sins that you're into and you keep going back to. Can I just tell you, it's not worth it. Live the free life in Christ. Cry out to him once again to rescue from those things. I don't know about you guys, but I'm so thankful that Jesus would love me enough to die on that cross 2,000 years ago. I wanna give him glory with my life. And when you think about glory, the most glorious day in history was 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? And that morning, when Jesus Christ came walking out of that grave with the keys, of the locks of our souls in his hand. Now, so I don't know about you, but I think it's appropriate. We should stand and we should give him some more glory before we leave this place. Would you do that with me?